Amen. I stand in him complete. That's what the scriptures say, that we are complete in him. We are complete in him because he is all and in all. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise your name. We glorify you again in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for his gospel, the gospel that says we are complete in him and that we have been washed clean in his blood. For it is the blood that makes atonement. And we have such wonderful, such glorious blood, the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We thank you, Lord, for your people whom we have gathered again. We pray that you speak to them by word. You know exactly how to speak to us. Lord, I pray now for grace that I may speak clearly, faithfully, and truly for your sake and the sake of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When John 12, 37 to 50, and that means we are going to finish John 12 today, the Lord willing. John 12, verses 37 to 50. The apostle says, verse 37, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Verse 44, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to serve the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. The word of the Lord. And our title is going to be, His Command is Everlasting Life. His command is everlasting life, and I'm thinking of a second one. Who is Jesus again? I remember we had another sermon some three months back or so where we talked about the identity of Christ. But as we are going to be learning, you are going to realize that this section of John chapter 12 is really also about identity of Christ. Jesus is making a lot of claims of deity in these statements that a lot of people 
just overlook. And people are going to say, well, Jesus never said he is God anywhere. No, Jesus was always saying he was God. The issue is, are you understanding what Jesus is saying? Okay. If I, for example, you know that if someone is getting the presidential briefing every morning from the head of the CIA and the FBI and everybody else, and they are flying on Air Force One and they're doing all these things, you know exactly who they are. They don't have to say that they're the president of the United States. But you know by what they are doing and what people are doing around them that they are the president of the United States. So the president doesn't have to tell people every morning, oh, by the way, I am the president of the United States. No, you know by what things he does that he is the president of the United States. So that is the same way with Jesus. We have to be given the grace to be able to make proper judgment of those things. So we are actually going to begin straight from verse 37 to 40. We talked about those verses before, but I thought it was necessary for the development of our teaching today that we begin from verse 37 of John 12. And it says again, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that section of that quote came from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, Now this is the reason why they could not believe. Verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. And many unbelievers say they would believe if they could just see some great miracle, seeing man getting slain the Benihin way, the Benihin style. <laughs> they want to see something tangible to believe. They want some fireworks. They want to see some physical phenomena that speak to their level of experience and knowledge. And they think if this would happen, then they would believe. But there's a huge problem with that kind of thinking. And the problem is that that is not how spiritual things work. People will continue to see and will still not believe. Why? Because God has hardened their hearts and God does not care what men think about how things should be done. God does not care about our opinion about anything. God does not run opinion polls to gauge his ratings. He does not. He is God. God is not running for office, so he doesn't care what people think about him. We have humanized God too much. That he has ceased to be the God of the Bible, but the God of human imagination, who is an overly emotional and vulnerable God. Because once you have a very emotional God, then he has to be vulnerable. And when we are talking about spiritual things, we do not use a thermometer to measure or determine spiritual realities or things. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. That's what the Bible teaches. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned because the flesh profits nothing. Flesh begets flesh and spirit begets spirit. That's the teaching of Jesus. 
And since we are born flesh, it means our flesh will profit us nothing with respect to spiritual things unless we have been made spiritual by a new birth by the Holy Spirit. So like begets like and dead things begets dead things. So a spiritually dead person cannot make a proper judgment of spiritual things. I'll give you an example. A thermometer is for measuring temperature. And so it is not the right tool to measure tire pressure or wind speed or humidity. Why? Because it has no ability to do that. It was not designed to do that. And you don't check your baking or cooking with a ruler. You use a thermometer. Why? Because the thermometer is designed to gauge temperature. So one cannot use their own natural instruments, their logic, human sense, their experience, sense of smell and touch to try and measure spiritual things. Human instruments are broken instruments. They are inadequate instruments to measure as to understand spiritual things. They can't measure them as to know what they are and what they mean. And so Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 10 verses 2 to 6. This is what Apostle Paul said. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bored with that confidence by which I intend to be bored against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. How do we walk, Apostle Paul? Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they are not fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when obedience is fulfilled. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying the true believer does not walk according to the flesh. And what that means is their thinking is not according to the way the world thinks. They have been given ability, the ones who have been born again, ability to see spiritual things that a lot of people don't see. So the believer does not walk according to the flesh. They don't use the same instruments to measure spiritual things as the world uses. We are different. So our weapons of warfare are not fleshly, they are not carnal, but mighty in God. They have power in God because they have the knowledge, power, and wisdom and understanding of God, the Holy Spirit who is in us. So there's more to believing than just seeing a fireworks display, seeing even the dead being raised to life. Many people saw the Lord perform all these miracles and more, and yet they did not believe. What, what did they do? They saw Lazarus being raised from the dead, and they did not go and hug Jesus and say, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> no. They came and they were looking for Lazarus to kill him. They wanted to kill Lazarus for being raised back to life and they wanted to kill Jesus for raising Lazarus back to life. Why were they doing that? Because they were spiritually dead. They were blind. They were hardened. And God hardened them. And the Lord Jesus Christ taught very clearly 
on this matter of miracles of faith and salvation with the story of Abraham, the rich man, and Lazarus. Go to Luke 16. The rich man and Lazarus both died and things were not looking very well for the rich man. He was in torments in Hades. He was very thirsty and so he reached out to Abraham seeking for help. And we'll begin at verse 24 of Luke 16. The rich man cried and said, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and sent Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, No, son, it is too late for that. Your situation cannot be helped. That is very important for us to know even that testimony, to say there's no salvation beyond this life. You either possess salvation here and now, or you never have salvation afterwards. That's just how God has determined to work things. So the testimony of the gospel has to be received here and now, or there's no hope beyond this. Let's skip to verse 27 to 31 of Luke 16. Then he said, this is the rich man. I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, that is, send Lazarus, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This is Jesus talking. And Jesus' opinion matters in everything that Jesus says. There are many who come and try to explain away and say, oh, this did not actually happen. This was a parable. So there's nothing like torment. There's nothing like conscious torment. There's nothing like, like, uh, no. I am going with the opinion of Jesus because the last time I read, Jesus is God. <laughs> but what is happening here? The rich man sought for the salvation of his five brothers who apparently were unbelievers, and so he suggested to Abraham that a miracle would sure cause his brothers to believe, especially if it was the resurrection of someone from the dead, like Lazarus the beggar. Why Lazarus the beggar? Because Lazarus was a well-known fixture on the streets. Everybody knew about him. He was always begging. And so people knew that Lazarus, the beggar, had died. He was not there anymore. And so if he were to show up again, people were like, oh, where did he come from? <laughs> but Abraham says, no, it does not work like that. If they read the scriptures correctly, the Old Testament, that should be enough for them. But is it not interesting that Abraham said to, to the rich man, you go read Moses. Abraham existed before Moses. Abraham died before Moses showed up. And yet Abraham knew about Moses and his writings. I just thought that was interesting. But when it's coming from Jesus, 
you have received it. <laughs> Abraham says, this is what Abraham is saying. It's Abraham saying this, but it's not really Abraham. It's Jesus who is saying this. Scripture alone is enough to bring someone to the knowledge of Christ and to the knowledge of salvation. But not only that, the Old Testament by itself was capable in that time, if properly understood, even now, and believed on to lead one to Christ and the true way of salvation. That's what Jesus was saying. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets, if they were read properly, they would lead one to the knowledge of Christ Jesus and salvation. And that was the Lord's point in telling the story because the Old Testament was given to testify of him and his gospel. But the rich man said, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. (laughs) No, Father Abraham, verse 30, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I can tell you that. I am 100% positive, Father Abraham, if you would cause this Lazarus to go back, my brothers would repent. And that's exactly the point, that's the argument of every unbeliever. They say, well, you show us one of those miracles from the Bible, and then I'll believe. Verse 31, but he, Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither would they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. If they do not hear what Moses and the prophets are teaching, they will never be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So what is Abraham saying? Hearing Moses and the prophets is enough to produce the correct knowledge of salvation if the gospel is taught correctly. And this was not about Abraham, and this was not about the rich men, and this was not about Lazarus. This was the Lord speaking to the Jews who were around him, who were in his hearing, who were opposing him, who were seeking for a sign so that they may believe. And the Lord is saying, I am actually going to give you a sign that was requested by the rich men. And that sign is the sign of Jonah, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Christ was going to die and resurrect and they will still not believe. The Lord is saying, I am going to die and I'm going to resurrect, but you still not believe. You have seen me every day preaching and teaching Just as you saw Lazarus the beggar begging every day. I am such a familiar figure as Lazarus the beggar was. I am going to die and you still not believe. Why? Because though you claim to believe in Moses, to be guardians of the law and the prophets, you do not know what Moses and the prophets were testifying of. These are people who identify themselves with the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying, the law and the prophets, are they that were testifying of him? He said, Moses wrote of me. There's no life in the scriptures themselves. Life is in Christ, not in the scriptures. Believe in the Lord and you shall be saved is how the life of Christ is given. And that is the simplicity of the gospel And this is why many were stumbling then 
and continue to stumble even in our day. They are stumbling at the simplicity of Christ. And so if Jesus has to be known, it can only be by revelation from God. You can't study yourself into knowing Christ. God has to reveal Christ to each and everyone who is going to come to Christ. It is a personal and particular experience, not a group experience, not of blood, nor the will of man or the will of the flesh, but of God. God has to do it. So John would come and say, going back to John 12 verses 37 to 40, John would come and say, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. He had done so many signs. They saw the signs. They did not believe in him. Why? That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, the arm of the Lord is Jesus Christ and he has to be revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. Now, Isaiah gives us the reason. And this is Jesus also quoting Isaiah. Jesus quoted this from Isaiah in the other text that we looked at. Because Isaiah said again, therefore they could not believe people have to learn to read cause and effect. This is basic comprehension. Therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. So what is Isaiah doing? Isaiah is giving us the background scoop of why they do not believe. They do not believe because God is he who is working behind the sins. He has hardened their hearts so that they would not believe because he does not want to save them. God does not want to save them. And people will kick and scream and throw a tantrum and come up with all kinds of arguments and explanations to deny this truth. But that's just the way things are. The more they kick and scream against this, the more they show that they have been hardened. The more they argue with what God has clearly taught, the more they show that they have been hardened. God hardening a sinner is not saying the sinner had natural ability before God hardened them. Because this is what a lot of people that I have interacted with or that I've had on the matter say. They say, well, if God has to harden them, then it means they had natural ability to believe. That's not true. The scriptures clearly say that every sinner died in Adam. That is hardening. When you have died in Adam, you are already hardened. They are born dead in trespasses and sins. That is hardening. The Bible says their minds are darkened. That is hardening. The Bible says they are under the prince of the power of the air, the devil. That is hardening. The Bible says they are slaves to sin. That is hardening. So the point of hardening is that God is showing his sovereignty over his creation and showing his sovereignty in salvation and determining who can hear spiritual truths and accept them and who cannot, that his grace may be magnified in the vessels of mercy. His grace has to be magnified. If you still remember, when the Lord showed up and spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus, those who were with Paul, they did not hear the voice of the Lord. 
In Acts 22, verse 9, we are told, and those who were with me, this is Paul giving his testimony, those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. They did not hear the words that were spoken to Paul. God selectively opened the ears and the eyes of Paul. But you see, when Paul was blinded, he saw the Lord. When Paul became blind, that's when he saw the Lord. And Jesus said, because you think you see, you shall remain in your sin. So when the Lord has opened your eyes, he blinds them. And when he has blinded them, you only see him. So those who were with Paul, they did not see, they did not hear what Paul had. They had nothing. Zero. And they did not even know that they had Nothing because they had nothing. (laughs) That is hardening. It was so silent to them that there was no sound whatsoever. And yet, there was such a sound. Paul had it. And it was just not some sound. There were words that were clearly spoken to Paul that Paul comprehended. Okay? I just want to talk about that light again because I think the Lord wants me to talk about it. When you hear the true gospel of Christ Jesus, it blinds you to you and everything else. It blinds you to your own good works. It blinds you to all your performance. It blinds you to anything that is you. And you only see him. You don't see Moses. Peter tried it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus showed up with Elijah and Moses. And Peter was thinking, well, this is wonderful. I never thought I would experience this. This is so good. Let me do some hospitality here. I'm going to have three tabernacles. I'm going to build three tabernacles. One for the Lord, Elijah and Moses. And he thought he was doing things right. And immediately, God spoke and said, no, 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 not that fast, Peter. This is not how things are going to be. And what happened? God came and overshadowed Elijah and Moses. The law and the prophets overshadowed that Christ alone may be seen. And when, and the text says, when Peter arose, but he was afraid. When they looked up, they saw Jesus alone. They saw Jesus alone. So when we are talking about the true gospel, we should only see Jesus alone. If we are continuing to see Jesus in the company of Elijah and Moses, then we still are not believing the gospel. We have to see Jesus alone. Okay. So God can speak and God can thunder, and yet some will hear. Total silence. God can come and shine his light. And yet some will only see darkness. So to be hardened by God means God is not tuning someone to the frequency where their radio can hear him speak in a serving way. In a way that brings repentance. In a way that brings faith. So when God has hardened someone, it means God is not giving them the frequency to which they can tune their radio so that they can hear him speak clearly on Christ. They can't hear him commanding them to repent, and they can't repent. They can't hear him saying, believe in my son. They won't come to the son. They won't believe, and that is hardening. And naturally, because of sin, men do not have a radio that can 
tune into the frequency that broadcasts Christ by their deciding. If they do, it will just be a lot of static noise, if anything. God's radio frequency is not an AM station, it's not an FM station, it is not on CNN, it's not on Fox News, it's not on Trinity Broadcasting Network. It is the Holy Spirit frequency. It is the Holy Spirit station. And unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will try to tune into that station and you hear nothing. <laughs> so we won't catch the broadcast from heaven because the gospel is a broadcast from heaven. So when a sinner is hardened, it means God leaves them in their dead spiritual state. He does not have to do anything new that was not already accomplished at the fall of Adam. When Adam fell, all men lost ability to tune to the radio frequency through which they could hear God until and unless he comes and restores them. God sustains that hardness though. God sustains the hardness and the spiritual death through the devil. If men are not dead, why do these free willers pray for the salvation of their family and friends? If men have natural ability to come to Christ by themselves without the Holy Spirit, why pray for them? Because when you pray to God, what are you saying? You are acknowledging that you have no power to bring conversion. You have no power to give faith. You have no power to grant repentance. God is not going to open the hearts of some people to believe. He opens the hearts of those that he gave to his son. There are some who shall remain in their hardness and deadness. And this is a very consistent teaching of God's sovereignty in salvation. And it is unpopular in the church, unfortunately, but it is the truth. He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his own sight is the true testimony of those who understand who God is. And this was from Eli. Eli received the news that God was going to kill two of his sons. And he didn't say, oh no, Lord, you can't do that. You can't do that. That's not fair. <laughs> that will make you so evil. Eli said, it is the Lord. He knew who it is who was talking. Let him do what is good in his own sight. So the goodness of God is not defined by us. The goodness of God is defined by God himself. So we are going to see, as we read the scriptures, God doing a lot of things that are contrary to our ideas of goodness. And yet we will still come with the same testimony and say, it is the Lord, let him do what is good in his own sight. But I'm going to make a few more statements on this. When someone tries to say, no, God does not harden people. What they are saying is that they are ashamed of a God who claims to harden people. And they are also saying it is unrighteous for God to do that. And when they say that, they are finding fault with God. They are finding fault because in their way of thinking, by their measure of righteousness, it is not right for God to harden people. And so they have to cook up some explanation that tries to remove the offense by saying, oh no, it can't be God doing that. It's Robert who is doing that to himself. So they begin to lay the responsibility 
on men which things are done by God himself. And that's messed up. But hear this. Because objections have been raised in a similar manner where God seems to be doing things that are contrary to how men want things to be ordered. Romans 9, 19-23, Apostle Paul arguing on the sovereignty of God in salvation and his justice and his right to do that says this. You say to me then, verse 19 of Romans 9, you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? God has hardened some people. So why does he still find fault if they can't believe? God has chosen some people to salvation. So why does he still find fault in those who have no power to come to him? Because it is him who has to give them power to come. Apostle Paul says, verse 20, explanation. But indeed, all oh men, who are you? <laughs> who are you to reply against God? Paul is saying, I think you have forgotten who you are. You are arguing about things that are above your pay grade. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? So that's sovereignty. Paul is saying God has the sovereign right to do whatever he pleases. And he continues and says in verse 21, does not the porter have power over the clay? Does not the porter have the freedom and the right over the clay to do what with the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. So Paul is saying God has the absolute right to do whatever pleases him with what he owns. And then we continue and says, what if God wanting to show now he's telling us why God serves some people and does not serve others. What if God wanting to show his wrath? So God wants to show, he wants to demonstrate his wrath. And to make his power known, God wants all creation to know that he has power. <laughs> Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So all those who hate God, they are around and they think or they owe their existence to evolution. What they don't understand is that God is being long-suffering. He has just not showed up to tell them the real story. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So those are two groups of people. God has prepared some vessels for glory. These are the ones who shall know the riches of his glory on them. And now, if you are to think that as a Christian who believes in Christ, when God wants to make known to you the riches of his glory, being the God who created all things, how much is he going to do that for you? Do you think God is just going to give you a house and some nuka? The God of creation who spoke all things into existence, he says he wants to make known to you the riches of his glory. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's a very blessed hope because in this life, there are not that many riches of his glory to experience yet. We are not different in many ways with the rest of the world. And the rest of the world actually does better than the majority of those who belong to God. 
And yet the hope of the Christian is that God has determined from eternity that you and I should partake of the riches of his glory in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, not some, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus has been given to the saints. So this is the truth of the matter, whether it is popular or unpopular. The sun rises and it is day, and when it sets, it is night. And that is the truth, whether one agrees with that or not. Grace is more than grace. If grace was just grace, then everybody will be saved. And if God was just love and all love, everybody will be saved. But when we read the scriptures, we see that the grace of God is a sovereign grace. And when it is a sovereign grace, it means it is an electing grace. It is a particular grace. It is very personal. It's one-to-one. When God came for you, he did not come for you because of Stan. He came for you because of you. It's particular. The grace of God chose on whom to bestow its favor, but not everybody. For the scriptures say, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. It is a hard saying, but you can't faithfully read the Bible and not find this teaching. And when you have sovereign grace, then you make many people mad because they do not want a God who chooses, but a God they can choose like candy from a shelf at Walmart and sit on like Rachel with her idols. I'm going to sit on my gods. And Laban even had the nerve to come looking for his gods. And he came to Jacob and said, who stole my gods? I'm thinking, well, what kind of gods do you have who gets stolen? Isn't your god supposed to be taking care of you? He's been stolen. <laughs> and I'm telling you, a lot of people have believed in gods that can be stolen and in gods that can be set on. But that's not our God. The God who is found in the store is the most popular God preached and believed in the church world. But that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. And the majority of churches, even this morning, this day, they came up with teaching that goes against God. They're fighting with God. And they're saying, we will not let this man to rule over us. But I have some bad news. There's no one who ever tried to fight with God and won. There's no one who will ever fight with God and win that battle. And so what do we do? We love him. We kiss the son. Make peace with the son. Lest he be angry. Save him. Agree with what he says. He is not seeking our opinion. He does not have a book called first, second, or third opinions. He is just declaring to us how things are. He's not asking us our opinions. But John says, going back to John 12, verse 41, John 12, 41, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Where did Isaiah see the glory and spoke of him? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 10. In the year that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. 
with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, War is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell these people, Keep on hearing, (laughs) but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So who did John say Isaiah saw? Isaiah said he saw the Lord God. John said Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And so who did Isaiah see? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The Lord was on a throne, and Isaiah saw the train of his robe that filled the temple. Why? What is happening? What are you guys talking about? Why did Isaiah have this vision? What was going on? Isaiah had the vision in the year that King Uzziah died. But What had happened, King Uzziah had gone into the temple to offer incense, which thing was only for the priests to do, not the kings. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 26. 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 to 21. The text says, But when he was strong, when King Uzziah was strong, his economy, if you go and read the whole chapter, The economy was strong and he had conquered all his enemies. He had consolidated all power and so everything was under control. His heart was lifted up to his destruction (laughs) for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him And with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Verse 19, Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and there on his forehead, he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. 
He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. King Uzziah wanted to act as both king and priest. He was not called to be a priest. And so the Lord smote him with leprosy and he died. And in that year, Isaiah had a vision. And the Lord gave that vision to Isaiah. And by the vision, the Lord was declaring to Israel that he is the king of Israel. He is the true king of Israel, seated on the throne. And not only the king, he also was the high priest of God and nobody else. His robe filled the temple. So when you have the robe filling the temple, it is saying there was no more room for any other person to try to be king and priest. Those robes were priestly as they were kingly. So the Lord is saying, O Israel, Uzziah was not your king. And Uzziah was not your priest. I am your king and I am your priest. And you're going to see as we read the verses that when Uzziah entered the holy place to burn incense, there was going to be smoke in the holy place. And we are going to see smoke also in the vision. The Lord Jesus is here shown as on his throne, but also his throne is in a temple. But what else did you see, Isaiah? Let's see. Let's hear what else Isaiah saw. Verse 2 of, of Isaiah 6. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim were not whispering from a sleeping bag. (laughs) They were flying with their feet covered, flying in holy place, crying out, saying what? Love, love, love. No, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That is the holy triune God. Holy, holy, holy. The emphasis there, because when the Lord speaks to Isaiah, he says in verse 8, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who go for us is plural. So this is Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of hosts. He was receiving worship from these angels as God. And God and the angels would have us to know and understand that Jesus Christ is God. He is king. He is the priest. And he is holy. Yes, he is love, but he's holy. His love is a holy love. Holiness is what he would have us to understand. Because he alone is God. When God says, I am holy, he is saying, I am set apart. I am different. I am above all that is created. There is none like me. To whom shall you liken me? And the expected answer is no one. Because there is none like the Lord. And so when the holiness of God is talked about, it is telling us that God in his being is not anything like anything. (laughs) He's just God. But here this verse 4 of Isaiah 6, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, 
and the house was filled with smoke. The doorposts were shaking from the massive voice of him who cried out, and no one told him to be quiet. <laughs> no one said, oh, you need to shut up. You are disturbing the peace. No. But we're told the house was filled with smoke. And this was not smoke from TBN smoke machines, but from the glory of God. Okay. <laughs> but listen to Isaiah's reaction. Isaiah's reaction. Isaiah did not say, man, this is so cool. I wish I had brought my video camera and recorded a clip to post on my YouTube channel. No, 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 no. Verse 5. So I said, What is me for I am undone. I am so ruined. <laughs> because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But that does not make sense. Isaiah, you have the best mouth and the cleanest mouth in town. You are the prophet of God. You have to have a clean mouth. Why are you pronouncing a war judgment on yourself? Isaiah says, no, I am undone. You guys don't understand. I am so ruined. I need a diaper change. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen who? They have seen the king. My eyes have seen the king. That was his problem. He said, oh, I am in trouble because my eyes have seen the king. Isaiah did not say I'm in trouble because my retirement money got messed up. He says, oh man, I'm in trouble because my eyes have seen the king. Just seeing the king is enough to cause you trouble. The king did not even say any word to him. Isaiah just saw the king and everything begins to fall apart. Who is the king? Larry King life. <laughs> Isaiah did not see the king with some suspenders. Don King, you know the promoter of Mike Tyson? <laughs> this big hair. <laughs> no, he saw the Lord of hosts. When we see the king, the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, we have to say, woe is me, for I am ruined who shall deliver me from this body of death. And Isaiah did not say, Oh, I'm deciding for you, Jesus. I'm inviting you. Now that I've seen you, I'm going to invite you into my heart. I am making a choice. I am making you Lord and Savior. Isaiah could not make Jesus Lord and Savior. Why? Because he saw the Lord. He saw him already lifted up and high. He was already king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is fainting. He could not hold it together and he could not even open his mouth because it was unclean. Too unclean that it would condemn him. And Job would come and say in Job 9.20, Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. Even when you think that you are righteous, the moment that you see the Lord, you are going to bring the same testimony as Job. Even though I were righteous, because Isaiah thought he was righteous. Because he is the one who had been telling the nation of Israel to repent. It's Isaiah. He's the righteous man. But when he came and saw the Lord, he says, no. No, 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 no. Oh, it's me. But what is the solution? Verse 6 of Isaiah 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken 
with the tongues from the altar. The seraphim with his six wings flew to Isaiah. And I can tell you that if you're going to see something with six wings flying to you, you're going to be terrified. His heart was literally beating out of his chest with fear and awe. So the seraphim brings a live call taken with tongues from the altar to page the mouth of Isaiah. Your mouth and mine, they need some paging with some hot calls because our iniquity is great. But what happened, Isaiah? What happened? Verse 7, And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin paged. And this hot call was put on Isaiah's mouth and it paged his sin. So are we saying that if we are going to page any sin that is in you, go to Maya, Home Depot, whatever, get some charcoal and put them on the grill and get some, some live coal and put it on your lips. We are going to ER very fast. That is not the way to remove your sin. <laughs> this is where the substance of the teaching is. The fire came from the altar. And there's no true altar that did not represent the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is from this altar of Christ represented here by which iniquity is removed. It is this altar of Christ represented here by which iniquity is removed. The altar of Christ had its fulfillment on the cross. The cross is the altar on which Christ was offered, was sacrificed. Okay? So our sin is removed from what happened on that cross. We do not have a relationship with God because we went to the store and bought some desk and called it an altar and started putting things on there. Or it's actually very popular teaching across the world right now. There are people doing that. They will not bring money as an offering until they have put it on an altar overnight. Okay? So, Brother Stan, I have an altar for you. Don't bring any offering without putting it on the altar. <laughs> but anyway, what did the Lord God say to Isaiah? Going back to our text, verse 8 to 10. The Lord God says, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell these people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So the other aspect of the gospel is that the gospel is a double-edged sword. To some people, it brings them life, but to other people, it actually hardens them. The more they hear the gospel, the more they hate it. And that's what is being taught also here. Go and preach the gospel that they may be hardened. So sometimes you, you share the gospel with some people and you're wondering why are they not coming? They're not coming because God's intention was not for you to convert them. His intention was to harden them by that gospel. So it's not always that we preach the gospel to have converts to Christ. Sometimes the Lord brings the gospel to harden some people. The only thing is we don't really know who. Verse 42. We are going back to John 12. So the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he applies these statements to himself. John comes and he applies these statements 
to Jesus Christ and says, Jesus Christ is God. And in the process, he tells us about the sovereignty of God in salvation. But verse 42, we are told of John 12, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. So even among the power brokers and players of Jewish politics and religion, they saw something about Jesus Christ. They believed in him, but they guarded their testimony. They did not confess him publicly because they were afraid of the Pharisees. Why were they afraid of the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees would have put them out of the synagogue. And why was that important? The synagogue was the economic hub for all the Jews. That is where everything happened. If you were excluded from the synagogue and everything that happened with the synagogue, you were tossed. I mean, with the temple. If we're knocked out of the temple, yeah, the synagogue and the temple, that's pretty much the same thing. I was thinking, I was talking about Sanhedrin. And I was like, uh, okay. So the temple system was the hub of life for everyone who was Jewish. So if we're excluded from it, your life really sucked. And that is also one of the backgrounds in the book of Hebrews. The reason why some of the Hebrew Christians were wanting to go back to Moses because once they left Moses, it meant they also had to leave the temple and its livelihood. And so life was not working for them. So they're thinking, no, away with this Jesus. We are going back to Moses. <laughs> and so the arguments that are there in the book of Hebrews, like in Hebrews chapter 6, where a lot of people say, well, that was saying people would lose salvation. No, that was not saying people would lose salvation. They don't understand the background that was being given in the context of what was transpiring then the temple had not yet been destroyed the temple was only destroyed in 70 AD so these people when they came to Christ they were being persecuted and then they were losing everything that was connected to life in the temple system okay so anyway going to our teaching the Pharisees would have put them out of the synagogue so why was that important because they loved in this context the praise of man more than the praise of God so their motivation was wrong. They wanted to keep their seats and important positions. They wanted to keep their reputations among men of importance. They wanted to keep their reputations clean and well-shaven and disturbed for earthly privileges. Do not rock the boat. Do not derail the gravy train and mess up my chicken noodle soup. And this is a danger more for me than probably for you. Because when I look at the landscape of Christianity, whether you are in the Reformed camp, Sovereign Grace camp, there are particular groupings of people and you are going to have some influential people who want to define terms of every grouping and they are going to force you to be something that you are not, that you may fit in. And if you don't fit into their mode, they are going to say some things to try and discredit you. So the battle that I have to fight, and I pray the Lord will give me victory, because this is real, is I have to always ask myself, why am I doing this? And for whom am I doing this? Who called me to do this? Because the moment that I think that I have to please 
some person so that they may call me to their conference or to their church to preach is game over for me. And it's very important because they can be so influential that I begin to say things that are not true. Just so that these guys will accept me and I begin to tell their theological line even though the Lord has given me clarity on the subject. And now the question that I have for myself is, at some point the Lord is going to call me and he's going to call me to account and say, James, I gave you understanding of this, but you did not teach that. Why did you not teach the truth? Because I gave you the truth and I know that I gave you the truth. Did those people call you to preach or I called you to preach? Who are you serving, man or God? And if you would pray for anything for me, that's the one thing that should never stop praying. Because the temptation is there and it's real. There are men who are out there just trying to cause you to stumble in one way or the other. Okay. So may it be that if we fall, we fall because we are telling the truth on Christ than to for a minute look like we're actually doing something important and yet the Lord is displeased because we only have one audience and it's Christ himself. If he's happy, then everything is good. So the whole system, the synagogue system was a racket. There was a lot of corruption and a lot of patronage. And if one was kicked out of this group, then they also lost their positions on top of the food chain of society. Loss of access to power. And so they were contemplating about these things and they said, no, no, no. Jesus is too much liability for us. Let us not talk or say anything about him. Let us be quiet. We would rather side with the Pharisees, side with men, side with our comfort, side with our own reputation. So what is happening here? What would the Lord have us to understand? What is happening? The Lord would have us to know that following Jesus, the testimony of Jesus coming from your lips is going to cost you your reputation. It may cost you employment. It may cost you friendship. It may cost you even family. That is what is being said. Why? Because what Jesus stands for is contrary to what the world and the religious system stand for. Following Jesus means to bring the offense of the cross out into the public arena and confess it from the rooftop without fear or favor. And I think Jesus talked about this also when he talked about having two masters, money and God. And he says, no man can serve two masters. It's connected to this. So the offense of the cross is not going to make you that many friends. The offense of the cross is going to make you lonely. Sometimes I feel the loneliness. It's going to make you feel lonely because everywhere you go, you talk to people who are claiming to believe in the gospel and yet they don't believe in the gospel. So what is the solution of removing the offense? <laughs> Keep the company of those who do not tell the truth on Christ. Or like in this case, they did not publicly declare their allegiance to Christ. They remained quiet about Jesus. They hid into the closets with their testimony of the gospel. And it seems from the words of John and even Matthew that the Lord does expect you and I to publicly carry the testimony of Christ. Listen to Matthew 5, 11 to 16. 
I'm very thankful for these words. I'm very thankful that these words are available to us because they help you to put things in context when you fall under a similar situation. Listen to Matthew 5, verse 11 to 16. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its flavor how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it seems like there is a spirit that is going from when the prophets began to be killed from Abel, that continues even in our day. The spirit that is always opposed to the truth of God. And the Lord says as an encouragement, rejoice. <laughs> and be exceedingly glad that you have that testimony. Don't cry about it. Be joyful that you were counted worthy to have such testimony because of Christ. What is Jesus saying? He's saying there is a therefore that comes from aligning your testimony with that of Jesus. As soon as you align your testimony with that of Jesus, there's trouble. <laughs> so there's a therefore that comes both in doctrine and in practice. The light is the gospel, and that gospel also comes accompanied with good works. The good works are informed by the gospel not the other way around. Every believer is ordained to do good works. They are ordained for us to walk in them. A good work is that which is done for Christ's sake or for the sake of the saints. Good works do not put us in Christ. Good works are produced because we are in Christ. We are in Christ by grace by election and the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ because of Christ. We are not in Christ because of us and what we did for Christ. We are in Christ because of what Christ did for us. Okay? Verse 44, John 12. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. The one who believes in him believes not in him but in him who sent him. What is that saying, Jesus? That is a little bit confusing. <laughs> Jesus is the elect one of God, and he is the apostle of God. Because that's what sent means. He is the sent one from God to reveal the Father. So Jesus speaks here of his mission as an ambassador from God who has brought a message from a foreign country. And the message that he brings is not his own message, but of the one who sent him 
And so he says, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. Now that is even more confusing. What is that saying? The one who sees Jesus sees him who sent me. That's what he said. That does not make sense. If brother Robert's dad sent him here and he comes and says, the one who sees him has seen his father. What is Robert saying? Everybody's like, Robert, what's wrong with you? Your father is not here and yet you are claiming that the, the one who sees me has seen him. Who sent you Jesus? John 8, 18 to 19. This is good stuff. I actually love this. Who sent you? John 8, verse 18 and 19. I am one who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If he had known me, you would have known my father also. So God the father is he who sent the son. But there's more. What is happening? The father and the son are so united that if you see the son, you have all seen the father. Why and how? Because the father and the son are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the father. The Lord said. They are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And yet there's language in that to suggest that the Father and the Son, though united, are different persons. The Father is not here, and yet is there. The Father sent the Son. The Son is talking to the Father, and they are one. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. That is just some amazing unity. Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Let's hear that again, verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory, so all the brightness of God is in Christ and the express image of his person, the personhood of God is in Christ, is in the Son. And this Son also upholds all things by the word of his power. There's only one who is God who can do that. Okay? When he had by himself paid our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on a high. John 14 7 to 11. John 14, 7 to 11. John says, If you had known me, this is the Lord speaking, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. And it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. And yet they are different. <laughs> That's unity. That's the mystery of the Godhead. Colossians 1.15 Jesus Christ is the image 
of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So everything that can be seen and can be known about God who is invisible can be seen and can be known in Christ. He is the image. So because he is the image of the invisible God, he says, if you've seen me, if you can see, you've seen the invisible. If you see me, then you've seen the Father. The Father is invisible, but if you've seen me, I am everything that the Father is. <laughs> Colossians 1.19. And just for someone who may listen to this message and say, oh, look, it says here, the firstborn of all creation, Jesus was born. No, that is talking about preeminence. Firstborn, the word there means preeminence. The one who comes before all things. Colossians 1.19 For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness of who God is, is found in Christ Jesus. And yet, even with that testimony, someone will raise their hind legs and say, Jesus Christ is not God. Well, I can't help you. You need to be born again. For no one can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit, if you can't bring this testimony, I can't force it on you. God has to give it. What is Jesus claiming in all this? He is claiming all that is denied by many religious organizations, by many peoples and churches. Jesus is claiming many complex doctrines. He is claiming that he is God. And that is denied by man. But he doesn't care. He is claiming that he and the Father are one but are separate persons with their own identities. This is denied by oneness Pentecostals, but he doesn't care. He is claiming that he is the revelation of God in the flesh. The fullness of God dwelt in him in bodily form. And this is denied by Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, but he doesn't care. And we don't care either. But the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is some really glorious mystery. And thank God that he has opened our hearts to believe that mystery. Jesus could not claim that if one has seen him, they'd seen the Father unless he was equal to the Father. You could not make that claim unless he understood that he had the same authority, same power, equal with the Father in every way. He was saying he was the exact expression or the image of the Father. There's nothing that is found wanting in Jesus that is found in the Father. Verse 46. We're getting close to the other side of getting that today. We're talking about Jesus. So that's a good thing. Verse 46 of John 12. I've come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. That whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. The Lord spells out again his mission to the world. He comes as light in the world. And that is assuming what? That is assuming that there is no light in the world. <laughs> and also it was a claim of deity. He was claiming to be God because when you read the Old Testament, God is he who claims to bring the light of salvation. It is he who comes to enlighten man's darkness. 
So the way to walk out of darkness is to believe in him. Believing in Christ is what extinguishes the darkness that is in man because of sin. Okay, verse 47. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And people say, oh, look, 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 Jesus said he doesn't want to judge anybody. He loves everyone. He said he did not come to judge the world. No, they are reading the verse isolated from the full context. If there is anyone who hears his word and does not believe, the Lord says he will not judge them. Why? For I did not come to judge the world. So what did you come to do then? To save the world. Now, I have to ask a question. Did you accomplish this work of saving the world? Because if he came to save the world, we have to find out if he actually saved the world or he did not. John 17 verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He came to save the world. And before the cross, he said, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So if he came to serve the world and he accomplished that work, what is left for us to do? Nothing. Just believe that it is done, kick back and relax. (laughs) And if anyone denies that Jesus finished the salvation of his people, the work that the Father sent him to do, then they are calling Jesus a liar. They are saying he lied to the Father that he finished the work that he was given to do Because that is what was recorded for us for his testimony. Okay, And not only that, we are also saying Jesus is lazy. (laughs) Jesus is lazy. But that is not our gospel and that is not our Jesus. But Lord, you said you did not come to judge the world. What is the assumption there? The assumption that is missed by people is that the world is already condemned. Jesus is not coming to condemn the world because the world is already condemned in Adam. The world needs salvation, okay? But there's some other thing that Jesus is also claiming. He says, I did not come to judge the world. The assumption is that he is God, because only God is he who judges. But why did you not come to judge the world? Listen to John 3, verse 17 to 19. John 3, verse 17 to 19. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So according to Jesus, the Father did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, through his name, the world might be saved. So the world was already condemned in Adam. And so it is the son who comes to lift up that condemnation. The son has to come to do some sorting work. He has to sort out his people from the gods. He has to get his ship from the gods. So this is the manner in which God brings out his people to himself. Verse 18 Of John 3, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who believes in Christ is not condemned. You have to slow down. He who believes in him is not condemned. 
But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The one who believes in Christ, it does not say he shall not be condemned. The one who believes in Christ is not condemned. So the fact that you believe means you are not condemned. You are not believing to not be condemned. You are believing because you are not condemned. That is the theology of John. Why? Because Jesus comes and tells us in the book of John that he has sheep that were given to him by the Father. And as the good shepherd, he has come to recover them and to give his life for them. So the ones who believe are not condemned. They are not believing not to be condemned. The one who believes has eternal life. It's present tense. They have eternal life. They believe because they already possess it. They are not believing to possess it. They already have it. And this is in keeping with the God who began his work of salvation in Christ from before the foundation of the world. He already knew us. He wrote our names before the foundation of the world. He knows everything about us. Okay? So that's glorious. And that statement, the second part of verse 18 of John 3, but he who does not believe, it doesn't say he's condemned. He said he's condemned already. They're condemned already. But why? Because they love darkness <laughs> rather than light. Jesus Christ is the light that the world hates that deeds are evil, those who hate Christ, the deeds are evil. So to not believe in Christ is what it means to be evil. It is not saying necessarily that you have to go about killing people. According to Jesus, if you hate him, you are evil. You don't have to behead anybody's head. You are evil if you don't believe the testimony of God about his own son. That's what Jesus is talking about. Remember, the people that Jesus is talking to are very religious people. They are more religious and even more righteous than you and I. In the flesh, they were more righteous. Because Jesus even came and said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you know where you see the kingdom of heaven. So these were very righteous, morally upright people. And he says, they're evil. <laughs> so those who are in Christ have already passed from death unto life because... They are righteous in Christ. But what is this world? And who are these that Jesus has come to serve? Because according to Jesus, there are some who will not believe. And by their unbelief, they seal their own condemnation. And others who believe, who confirm of their standing before God. They confirm by their believing that they have eternal life. Jesus was not in any way saying he came to serve the world system as it stands and its wickedness. And Jesus was not saying he came to serve every person who ever existed in the world. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not saying he is the balm of Gilead for Washington's problems. <laughs> His issues always were sin, death, condemnation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins propitiation of sins, the new covenant in his blood, everlasting righteousness for his people, everlasting life for his people, those were his issues. He can deal with Washington from heaven, for earth is his footstool and heaven his throne. But when he appeared in the flesh, it was for taking away sin 
for a particular people, his people. And then he will say, continuing with our teaching in John 12, verse 47, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to serve the world. So by the statement, if anyone hears, someone will say, oh, see, Jesus said, if anyone hears, that is saying, if anyone hears, he was not saying, man have natural ability to believe. That's not what he was saying. He was not saying it's free will gospel. That's not what he was saying. He was just stating the reality of things that those that were given him by the Father will hear. And there are some who will not hear no matter what you tell them. Okay? So those that were given to him by the Father who are in the world are they who hear. John 6, 44-47 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me without any fail. Everyone who is taught of God will come to Christ. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Has. <laughs> to deny that the Father gave a people to Christ by election according to grace is a denial of the testimony of both the Father and the Son. It is teaching and believing a false gospel. If you deny election by grace, you are denying the gospel. The Lord says, he who believes in him has eternal life. Present tense, as I said, Jesus did not say he who believes shall have eternal life. No, eternal life is eternal life. We have it forever. Okay, We shall only be separated from the physical body when we die, but we shall not die. And you know, we had a sermon that we taught from John 11 on soul sleep. There are some who maintain that when you die, you become unconscious. We don't teach that. They may become unconscious, not me. I have eternal life. If you have eternal life, it means you live forever. So my hope is that when I die, absent from the body is present with the Lord. And that's the testimony that you're going to bring when I die. I am not so sleeping people. I'm going to be learning more theology over there. <laughs> John twelve forty eight. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Romans 2.16 In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So the one who rejects the Lord by not receiving his words shall be judged by the same words in the last day. And that means by the righteousness of the gospel. The gospel will give life but also it brings judgment. Why? Galatians 1 verse 8 to 9. Apostle Paul says even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The point that I want to draw to your attention is that Jesus said, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And Apostle Paul is very serious to guard the gospel. 
and say, perverting the gospel of Christ is the worst crime. God is going to use it for judgment. This is not talking about making friends with men, but with Christ. And as I said, if Christ is happy with you, then it is well with you. And I pray that I'm telling the truth on Christ. But what is to perfect the gospel? It is to deny God's witness about his son. A denial of the deity of Christ. Because when you deny that Jesus Christ is God, you've already denied everything about Christ. When you deny the incarnation of the son, that Christ came in the flesh. Remember, Apostle John addressed that. There were people who were denying that reality of Christ coming in the flesh. If we deny the imputation in all its forms, the imputation, the nature of imputation in all its forms, there are some people, I saw an article actually, that said, is it necessary for salvation to believe that the first Adam actually existed? Well, if you deny that the first Adam existed, then you have denied Romans chapter 5. Because sin and death and condemnation came by the disobedience of the first Adam. And Christ, when he came, he came to remove all those things from the first Adam. So it's impossible, as far as I understand, to believe the true gospel if you don't believe that the first Adam existed. Okay. So also, when we deny the finished work of Christ, we are denying the person of Christ. Verse 49 and 50, and we're done. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So the Lord here speaks again and invokes the name of the Father as his witness. He says, the words that I spoke are the same words that the Father gave me to speak. The Lord here is showing us what obedience to God is like. It is saying the same words that God has spoken about the Son. And this is why the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son because the Son was always doing the will of the Father. And the Son came with this command from the Father. And the command was everlasting life. Everlasting life to all those who are in the Son. Everlasting life is a command which means it's a decree issued by the Father to all those who receive the Son. And this is what pleased the Father to command the Lord to preach the gospel not of a salvation that can be lost but one that brings eternal life. The salvation that Christ brings cannot be lost. It's a gospel that brings eternal life. And there's no relenting on this command and the same John would come and say in 1 John 2, 24 and, and 25, Therefore let that abide in you which you had from the beginning. If what you had from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. That's the promise. That's the promise. So then the gospel, as we close, the gospel is such wonderful news to the sinner because Jesus Christ, by his broken body, has filled the whole house of God's people with such a wonderful fragrance of very expensive perfume. This is how we started the chapter. The broken body of Christ has filled God's people with such a fragrance that pleases God. And it was not just some ordinary perfume, it was expensive perfume. 
300 denarii worth of perfume. That's his righteousness. And that's how we smell before God. We smell good. And this Jesus was glorified on the cross and was planted into the ground as a grain of wheat so that he would produce much grain, salvation to you and I. Because if Jesus does not die, then all the promises of eternal life cannot come to us. He is the light of the world and we are to walk in his light, in the truth of his gospel, holding fast to that which is his light, that which is true, that which is our inheritance. But this Jesus has not been revealed to all men. Jesus has not been given to all men. He does not desire the salvation of all men, but only for those that the Father gave to him. But of those that the Father gave to him, he shall lose not one, because he is the good shepherd of the sheep. How shall one know they belong to the Lord? How shall one know that they are one of his sheep? They believe in him. They believe in God's testimony of him. And how shall one get lost? How can you get lost? Is it even possible for you to be lost? One is lost when they walk in their own light, which is no light but darkness. When they try to work out their own righteousness, that is getting lost. But our message is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But when you repent and believe, it means he has already caused it. And that means you have eternal life. That's our gospel. Amen. I'm done. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for choosing him to represent your people, to die for your people, and to save them from sin and from condemnation, and to give them eternal life, everlasting righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for that blessing. It's a wonderful blessing. We just don't understand what it means, but we believe the testimony. We believe the testimony that it is an imperishable hope. And I just pray, Lord, that you would cause your people to see Christ more, to hear from Christ more, to love Christ more, to put their hope in Christ alone, and for them to see that they have no hope in this life. There's nothing that this life can give them. There are billions of people who have passed through thinking that they may be something in this life, but when they died, they realized they were nothing without Christ. So Lord, I pray that our sufficiency only be in Christ and what he accomplished. I pray for your people as they go out. May you strengthen their testimony of Christ. May you continue to provide for them in all things. May you strengthen the hearts that are fearful and the legs that are weak. For whatever reason, Lord, may you strengthen them. We thank you, Jesus. We pray in your precious name. Amen.